0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Welcome to the First Universalist Unitarian Church. My name is Carl Drake, and I'm a member of this congregation. I want to extend a special welcome to any visitors joining us this morning. Since 1858, UU Wausau has served as a vital voice of liberal religion in central Wisconsin. We are an intentionally free society that welcomes all people just as you are regardless of age, sexual orientation, ethnicity, or economic situation. Wherever you are on life's journey, you are welcome here. Between Sundays, we'd love to have you at one of our classes or events. So be sure to subscribe to the church's newsletter and follow us on Facebook or Instagram for updates. We have a couple of announcements. Thank you to the Reverend Suzelle Lynch for leading our service today. She has been a UU minister for 29 years, serving congregations in Wisconsin, Washington, California, and Texas. She's a graduate of Star King School for the Ministry, a co-founder of Black Lives Matter Wisconsin UUs, mom of an aspiring opera singer, oh yeah? And a trained labyrinth facilitator. We'll have to get her to explain that to us. Um, Today is our community-focused collection for May. Your donations will go towards supporting the women's community justice systems programs. Learn more about this important program during our service. I think we might have a speaker coming. I'm not sure. Oh, well, maybe not. As we begin our worship together, let us take a moment to extend peace and blessing to one another. Please rise and greet your neighbors. Perfect, okay, so it's that paragraph there. No, you you, you, you just say that and then start reading the chalice letter. Okay?
1: Okay. Dear friends, let us regather and gather our hearts and minds for worship. And I invite you to join with me in reciting the words for the chalice lighting that are printed in your order of service. We light this chalice for the light of truth, the warmth of love, and the fire of commitment. We light this symbol of our faith as we gather together. And now just as you've sat down and become comfortable, I invite you to rise in body or in spirit for our opening hymn number 1007, There's a River Flowing in My Soul. In the Teal Hymn. The Teal Hymn.
2: man
0: join me in reciting the affirmation. The words are in your program. Love is the doctrine of this church. The quest of truth is its sacrament, and service is its prayer, to dwell together in peace, to seek knowledge in freedom, to serve human need, to the end that all souls shall grow into harmony With the divine, thus do we covenant with each other. And now the doxology.
2: From all that dwell below the skies, and songs of Through every then by every time
1: Have you ever felt lost? Who here has felt lost? What helps you find home? What helps you find your centering place? Where the song is right and there's snuggles for everybody, whether they're virtual or in reality, it's something to think about today. So if you are a person heading forth to religious education or youth group, we invite you to head out now as we sing "May peace surround you
2: May peace no! Uh-huh.
0: The mission and ministry of UU Wausau is made possible by the generous support of its friends and members. Rather than pass a plate at this time, we've placed an offering basket in the back of the sanctuary for you to drop a gift in. You can also stop by our website, uuwausau.org, to make a one-time or recurring gift, ideally recurving, with your credit or your debit card. Thanks so much for your support. And remember, the collections today are for the benefit of the Women's Community Justice Systems Program. So give generously. Thank you.
1: Thank you, Margaret, for that beautiful music. So today is Mother's Day, my friends. And some say that Mother's Day is a holiday manufactured by our culture to sell cards and chocolates and flowers. But as Unitarian Universalists, we know that our ancestor, Julia Ward Howe, and her sister advocates proclaimed it as a day for peace way back in 1870. Today, we honor Mother's Day as a reminder of all the power mothers and mothering have in our lives. So I invite you to join your hearts and your minds with mine now in the spirit of meditation and prayer. spirit of life and love, spirit breathing in us and through us and all around us, reaching out from each one of us here to touch everyone in this room and reaching far beyond the walls of this church to touch all living things across our earth. We know there can be no day singled out in the calendar dedicated to Just one thing. For all of our days, we are engaged in a multitude of thoughts and acts. We are engaged in living, living with all its blessings and challenges. And even so, we're pausing today to reflect on mothers and mothering. Who are the ones who mother? Surely each of us came into the world through the body of a person who had a uterus. And that person may be the one who fed us and comforted us and played with us and listened to our troubles and held us with love or not. Mothers are the ones who give us life, and not only physical life, They are the good persons of all gender identities and gender expressions who are with us. And with their gentleness and strength, they hold us up when we are sinking down. Mothers call us to do our best. They take pride in our success. They call us to see beyond who we are now so that we might become our best selves. Mothers are the ones whose tenderness gives us courage, the ones whose examples and mentoring helps us take risks. They are the ones who show us how to laugh and to cry. They are the ones who listen and who know that their lives don't always match the advice they give. Mothers are the ones who teach us the ways of compassion the good people of all gender identities and gender expressions who are with us. Pause for just a moment now to hold in your heart and your thoughts someone who mothered you. Mother's Day is a day to celebrate and be grateful and glad for mothering. But for many of us, it brings sadness, anger, or mixed feelings as well. So let us honor those feelings too. Let's remember those who have lost their mothers and those mothers who needed their children to be cared for by other mothers. Let us remember those who want to conceive and bear children but cannot. And let us remember those who choose to end a pregnancy. May we fiercely work for their right to choose. Let us remember the ones who mother others, other mothers' children as stepmothers and the mothers who have lost children of any age to estrangement or death. Let us honor them all on this day. Let us stretch our hearts not only with celebration, but also with sympathy, calling upon the mother we each have within to respond to our world, our lovely, fragile, challenging world, to respond with beauty and strength, and a reaching out of hearts and hands. Shalom, blessed be, Ashe, and amen. And now I invite you to remain seated and sing with me prayer hymn number 352 in your gray hymnal, Find a Stillness. Our reading this morning comes from Ken Wilbur, and Ken Wilbur is very tricky. He has escaped my folder, but not my phone, we hope. It's funny sometimes how the Spirit likes to mess with us, if there is such a thing as the Spirit. which some of us feel most deeply and others of us not so much. not there either. So guess what? We're just not going to have him. And we'll come to our lovely music meditation, Journey of the Heart. I found him. I know, right? So this is from The Marriage of Sense and Soul, Real and Bogus, by Ken Wilber. The first thing we can't help but notice is that the founders of the great traditions, almost without exception, underwent a series of spiritual experiences, profound ones, Their revelations, their direct experiences were not mythological proclamations about the parting of the Red Sea or about how to make the beans grow, but rather direct apprehensions of the divine, spirit, emptiness, deity, the absolute. At their peak, these apprehensions were about the direct union or even identity of the individual and spirit. A union that is not to be thought of as a mental belief, but lived as a direct experience, the very summum bonum of existence, the direct realization of which confers a great liberation, rebirth, metanoia, or enlightenment upon the soul. And what each of those spiritual pioneers gave to their followers was not a series of mythological or dogmatic beliefs, but a series of practices, injunctions, or exemplars. Do this in remembrance of me. The do this, the injunctions, included specific types of contemplative prayer, extensive instructions for yoga, specific meditation practices, and actual interior exemplars. If you want to know this divine union, you must do this. And here ends the reading. So I invite you to close your eyes for just a moment. Imagine that you are setting out for a walk on a smooth, well marked pathway. You step along, following the path feeling calm but alert as you move. You're confident, but there's also a part of you that is seeking, yearning, a part of you that is being led by one of life's deep questions, your deep question. As you walk, the way before you turns to the right and then curves onward gently. The path ahead continues along such curves and sometimes it turns 180 degrees, almost doubling back on itself. It unfolds before you as you move at your own comfortable pace. After one final turn, you now step into a wider place that invites you to pause. To breathe. You feel that you're welcome to rest in here for as long as you need to, that here you can relinquish your cares or let go of that question. And so you rest, you breathe, perhaps you pray or you sing or you listen, or stretch your arms to the sky. And then when you're ready, you step back onto that path. Same path, returning along its easy curves and tighter turns until you reach the place where the path begins and ends. Welcome to the labyrinth, an ancient symbol for the life journey, a modern metaphor for the human quest for meaning. Welcome to the labyrinth path, a purposeful path that spirals us deep into our own center and returns us to the world renewed. Labyrinths have existed on nearly every continent and in many different cultures for thousands of years. They have been used as tools for meditation and prayer and ritual. They are an archetype, a symbol imprinted on our human consciousness over time. But they're an archetype that can be made big enough to walk into, to get inside of, and move around. You have a very nice canvas labyrinth that belongs to your church. And in fact, it's set up this morning upstairs in Walker Hall for us to enjoy after the service if we choose. But labyrinths come in many forms. The two most common forms are called the classical labyrinth and the medieval labyrinth, And I just happened to bring some labyrinths with me today. They're a little beat up. They've been through a lot of workshops over the years. So this is the classical labyrinth. This is one of the most common forms, this one and the medieval labyrinth form. This one's at least, can you see it? 4,000 years old. It's been found on ancient manuscripts, carved in stone on many continents, engraved on coins in ancient Greece, and woven into the baskets of the Native American Tohono O'odham people who live in present-day Arizona. It's also been found in India, and laid out with stones in full walking size on the shores of Scandinavia and Europe. Uh These two and your labyrinth upstairs are forms of the medieval labyrinth. They're patterned after a labyrinth created in the 11th century at the Chartres Cathedral in France. Many such labyrinths were installed in European cathedrals during the High Middle Ages to be a place of pilgrimage for Christians. I have another example of the medieval form here as well. This is a finger labyrinth. You don't walk with your feet. You trace with your finger. If these labyrinths or others you may have seen look like mazes to you, you're not alone. People often confuse labyrinths and mazes because they do have some similarities, and in fact, in some languages, the word for labyrinth and maze is the same. Both of them are complex and intriguing, but the big difference is that a maze is a puzzle to be solved with a pathway that branches and sometimes ends in blind alleys, so you have to turn around and go back. If you're walking a maze on foot or with your finger or trying to solve it with a pen or pencil, you have to think analytically and make careful choices. With a labyrinth, on the other hand, the path simply meanders through its curves and its turns until it reaches the center, that welcoming open space we imagined ourselves in. And once we have paused in the center, we followed the same path back out to the entrance. There, there are no blind alleys, no choices to make, except whether you keep going. We set aside the analytical part of our minds in a labyrinth and just let the path lead us. So why would we want to do such a thing? Well, some of us probably don't, and that's okay. I will never forget a longtime member of my, the first congregation I served. Her name was Wilma Harkins. And when Wilma heard that we were putting a labyrinth on the church grounds, she buttonholed me and she said, Suzelle, I just can't imagine why all those people want to walk in circles. <laughs> She had a point, but I had to laugh because I was all one of those people who wanted really badly to walk in circles, but I couldn't convince Wilma. For me, walking the labyrinth is the most powerful spiritual practice I've ever experienced. Now, spiritual practices, of course, are activities we engage in on a regular basis that connect us to the depth dimension of life. They help us replenish our sense of meaning, and they help us develop a sense of spaciousness within ourselves. They don't have to be traditional or even religious, although people most often think of meditation and prayer when they think of spiritual practice. But we Unitarian Universalists have intentionally widened the definition of spiritual practice because we are so very diverse in the ways we think about religion, and sources of meaning. For us, spiritual practices can be many different things, but to be a spiritual practice, they do have to deepen our inner wisdom and wholeness, not just make us feel good. Spiritual practices, or deepening practices, as I like to call them, help us find that sacred center within us connected to that sense of beyondness. I like the idea of calling these things deepening practices because the desire to live deeply is rooted in our religious heritage. Our Unitarian and Universalist ancestors believed that we needed to deeply and consciously live the life we each have right now instead of waiting for an afterlife to live fully. Yet even with our this-worldly focus, we have always been opened to profound spiritual experiences. Such uh, openness is one of the primary sources of our faith tradition. That's what Ken Wilber is talking about, that the, those experiences that rock our world and kind of push our awareness out beyond where we've been before. What we lack, though, in our religious tradition is the kind of clear injunction that Ken Wilber says the founders of the great traditions gave their followers instructions for specific kinds of prayer or yoga or particular meditation practices. And that's true. Unlike, say, our Muslim members, friends, and neighbors, uh, for example, who were instructed by the Prophet Muhammad to pray five times each day while facing the holy city of Mecca, we don't have anybody saying to us, if you want to go deep or know the fullness of the holy, do this thing. But just because nobody gave us instructions doesn't mean we're released from the need to grow and go deep. Indeed, our forebears like the Reverend William Ellery Channing declared 200 years ago, nearly 200 years ago, in a sermon called Likeness to God. He said that our very humanness compels us from within to grow in depth and responsibility, meaning the ability to respond to our world with all its beauty and pain. He said our ability To grow from within has more of divinity in it than the force which impels the outward universe. Don't you love those words? And so we have it. We have a responsibility to choose a practice that helps us grow in depth. Sometimes that practice might result in insights or a felt sense of the transcendent, But mostly, spiritual practices aren't things we do to get something. They're not ends in themselves. They're tools to help us slow down, tune our consciousness differently, and they also are tools that help us direct our intentions beyond our small self. They're like a compass by which we steer our lives. That's why I walk labyrinths. It's my way to open space within myself to nurture that which is precious and tender and helps me grow more whole, and it's my compass. It helps me stay centered and resilient through all of the challenges and changes in life. So where the labyrinth originated in all those thousands of years ago, four or five thousand years ago, It's still something of a mystery. There's this dude named Herman Kern, who's an internationally known art historian who has this amazing tome of a labyrinth book. It's out of print, I have one. Envy me. He studied the archeological and historical record and he says that the earliest labyrinth may actually not have been a pattern laid out on the ground but a dance, a dance that was passed on through the generations through physical teaching until someone drew it out. And he says that the labyrinth dance was likely part of a rite of passage. His research and that of other scholars has revealed that in both pre-Christian and medieval Christian times in Europe, labyrinths were used as tools for meditation, divination, pilgrimage, and prayer. And those stone labyrinths found near the shores around the Baltic Sea, laid out in in stones, they were believed to have been walked by medieval fishermen before setting out to sea. And walking the labyrinth would help ensure good winds and a good catch. There are turf labyrinths in England, That may have been used in ancient days for courtship rituals. And in India, it's said that the labyrinth was used to help pregnant women in labor. The labyrinth would be traced in spices on a bronze plate and then dissolved in water and given to the pregnant woman to drink. And it was supposed to help the baby find its way out of her womb. Isn't that fascinating? I first met the labyrinth 27 years ago. I was serving a church in the Seattle area, my first congregation, when my best friend invited me to go with her to experience walking a large canvas labyrinth that the Reverend Dr. Lauren Artress had brought to a Seattle Episcopal church. Dr. Artress, a priest from Grace Cathedral in San Francisco, was spearheading this labyrinth revolution and renaissance of sorts, bringing this ancient symbol back into our modern American consciousness. Walking that labyrinth was an intriguing experience. It helped that it was this gorgeous cathedral candlelight, very mysterious medieval music playing in the background. But it touched me in a very deep way. Up until then, I'd been kind of a spiritual dabbler. Little Buddhist sitting meditation here, little yoga over there, little Thich Nhat Hanh style walking meditation, which I was really bad at. But I really hadn't found a practice that clicked for me. In walking that labyrinth, there was deep peace. My mind quieted my heart opened, the rhythm of my steps, the act of turning and meandering and even feeling lost at times as I walked was the perfect metaphor for my life's journey. I was on the path and my path at the same time. And walking that labyrinth reassured me that I wasn't on the wrong path, that it was all path, and that all I had to do was keep putting one foot in front of the other and the path would lead me to that centering space and then back out into the world in a cycle that felt organic and human, universal and transformative. Because labyrinths were few and far between back then, back in the 90s, anybody remember the 90s? (laughs) My second labyrinth experience didn't happen until a few years later, and it happened not long after I had struggled through the miscarriage of a very wanted pregnancy. A friend in San Francisco who knew how sad I was invited me to come and visit her and said that she would take me with her to walk the labyrinth at Grace Cathedral. I entered the labyrinth that day wrestling with the question of whether I would ever be able to have a child, a biological child. I was 39, and my husband and I had been struggling for years from an infertility our doctors could not explain. I had read that it was possible to take a question to the center of the labyrinth and release it, and that in the process I might get some kind of guidance or insight that my normal rational mind wouldn't find. So there I was, walking that labyrinth, carrying my great longing to be a mother, carrying it like a heavy stone. My walk to the center produced no insights, no answers. And as I went back through the graceful curves to the labyrinth's entrance, I was deeply disappointed. My friend was still walking, so I sat down in one of the cathedral's pews, and I started to cry as I waited for her to finish. As I was sitting there in the pew... I suddenly heard a voice. It was soft but clear, as though somebody were sitting right next to me or right behind me. And the voice said, A baby will come. The words were really crisp, really clear. I jumped up and I turned around. Was there somebody behind me? There wasn't anyone there baby will come. Who was talking? Who had spoken those words? Could I trust the voice? I wanted to trust that voice. But I could not. I could not trust. And yet, within a year, I was pregnant again. And my son will turn 24 in a couple of weeks. Sally Quinn, who was a columnist for the Washington Post, wrote about the labyrinth she visited one warm, sunny afternoon. She wrote this a few years ago. As she walked that labyrinth, a light breeze whispered through the leaves of the live oak tree that surrounded the labyrinth. Sally wrote, I began concentrating on my son Quinn, who had severe learning disabilities at the time and was in a special school. What would become of Quinn? We'd had a particularly difficult year, and I was in despair. I entered the labyrinth, she said, and began to make my way slowly toward the center, and once I got there, I sat down and I looked straight ahead. My eyes fell on a huge pine tree in front of me that I hadn't noticed before. It had beautiful spreading boughs as though it were embracing the circle of the labyrinth. It was one of the prettiest trees I had ever seen, and amidst all those live oaks, it was the only pine. As she sat there in the center of the labyrinth, Sally suddenly experienced a stroke of clarity. That pine tree was her son. She wrote, he was different from all the other trees, but he was more beautiful than they were. How could I not have realized this all along? In that stroke of clarity, in the center of that labyrinth, Quinn's view of her son and of her herself in his life changed. She wrote, I told my son about my experience with the pine among the oaks And he decided that he could make a life using his problems to help other people. And her kid did. Her son, Quinn Bradley, wrote a book about growing up with learning disabilities. And he created a website to offer support for other young adults who learn differently. I have entered the labyrinth many times over the past 27 years in many places with many a life question and many a prayer for peace or healing. It is not always a magical experience. Sometimes it's just walking with an open heart. I've walked labyrinths in cities across the United States and in Canada and in Costa Rica, I walk labyrinths everywhere I go. There's this cool thing called the Worldwide Labyrinth Locator that has 6,000 labyrinths listed. So if you're traveling, you can go, hey, let's just take a little detour. There's a labyrinth over here. My um, husband-to-be uh, has become my labyrinth buddy. He doesn't seem to mind the detours too much. I've walked labyrinths alone and with other people. I've drawn the labyrinth in the wet sand of ocean beaches and on the shore of Lake Michigan. I've shoveled a labyrinth path out on a frozen lake just this winter. First time. Super cool. I've explored the science of how the labyrinth works. Created my own labyrinth design. Taught many labyrinth workshops and if you want to know more, you know, ask your people. I'll come back and talk to you because if I told you everything I knew now we'd be here for a week. As you could probably tell I love the labyrinth and I love it because as Dr. Lauren Artris likes to say the labyrinth meets us where we are. Each of us who walks a labyrinth experiences it differently because we bring our different lives to it our different bodies. It's a great spiritual practice if you are like me not able to sit still for long. It's useful for those of us who dwell too much in the world of books and ideas because it helps us understand that it isn't just our minds that are a gateway for deepening. Our bodies are as well. And it's good to walk a labyrinth when we feel lost, too, like little Pip in our story because the labyrinth can help us Find our song, our center, when we are in confusing times. And for those of us who find meaning in the metaphor of the human spiritual journey, what could be better than a practice in which we can practice that journey from beginning to middle to ending? Every one of us, every person, is a seeker after meaning on the path of life, each of your lives is a sacred journey, a dis- journey of discovery and change, a journey of growth and transformation. It is, as William Ellery Channing said, the thing we are impelled from within to do. I hope that you'll try walking a labyrinth sometime, maybe today. But even more, I hope you find a spiritual practice that deepens your inner wisdom and helps guide your intentions beyond the self and helps you find your way through all the turnings of your life's path. Shalom, blessed be, Ashe, and amen. Our closing hymn is 86 in your gray hymnal. It is Blessed Spirit of My Life, and I invite you to rise in body or in spirit and sing along. What a gift it is to have shared this hour here in your beautiful church. May we take this moment to give thanks for another day, to give thanks for this community and for all those in our lives who have brought us warmth and challenge and love. As we prepare to go forth, may we open ourselves here now and always to that process of becoming more whole, of living more deeply, of giving and forgiving more freely, of understanding most completely the meaning of our lives here on this beautiful earth. Shalom, blessed be, Ashe, and amen. You may be seated for the postlude. Is that... Is that what we do? Margaret had a musician, the wonderful Louis. You guys know Louis, right? Yes. Um, not be able to be with us today, and so she has invited me to sing with her our postlude, which I also had um, the honor of writing in honor of the 100th anniversary of Flower Communion, which I know you'll be celebrating later. It's called We Are One.
2: We are here, and a new faith is dawning. We are here, many hearts filled with hope. We are here, joining freely together, siblings and strangers, cousins and neighbors, creating Shaping what will come We are here, we are here, we are one We are one Though each of us is different We are one each with blessings and needs we are one bringing beauty to the table siblings and strangers cousins and neighbors nurturing each other singing harmony we are one we are one we are free We are free, liberated from old symbols, we are free, free to learn, grow, and serve. We are free, like flowers in the garden, siblings and strangers, cousins and neighbors, growing in our country. To face the great unknown We are free, we are free We are home We are home Respecting one another We are home Sharing all that must be done We are home, in the voices of our children, siblings and strangers, cousins and neighbors, loving one another, what could be more clear? We are home, we are home, we are here we are free we are home we are here we are one we are free we are here